Uh, well, good morning again. This morning we'll be continuing or wrapping up, I should say, our Advent series called Bigger Than Our Whole World, which we get from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. We'll be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. That's printed for you in toto um, on page 11 in the ESV at the top, and there's a children's version at the bottom there. You'll want to have that in front of you, boys and girls. We do refer to that throughout the sermon. So like I said, we're wrapping up our Advent series just to kind of give you a preview of things to come. In the spring, we're going to be starting in a couple weeks a series we're calling Strong Old Testament Women. And we'll be spending from uh, beginning of January till Easter in the book of Esther, and then after Easter to the beginning of summer in the book of Ruth. It's going to be a great time of seeing God's redemptive purposes and God's grace working through these two strong Old Testament women. But until then, we're still wrapping up our Advent series, and now we're in a very familiar story here in Matthew chapter 2. It takes place after Christmas, very much like today. Jesus has already been born, and his parents seem to now live in Bethlehem for a time. And so back when the shepherds encountered the angels and were told to go and see Jesus, kind of at the same time across this vast desert, eastern wise men were told, very educated astronomers, scientists, political advisors, they, they saw a star that caused them to head west. And that's where our story picks up. And so if you are able, would you please rise for the reading of God's word, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now this is God's word. Let's pray together. Gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, that we might know you and know your grace and know your Son. And so we ask, Father, that by your Spirit you would open this text up to us that we might see more of Jesus. And we ask this, Lord, in his name. Amen. Please be seated. So the thrust of this story, what would have captured Luke's first readers as he chronicles this event for them, is that non-Jewish people come to worship Jesus as king. Sorry, I said Luke, Matthew there. You see... God has a heart for the nations. And one of the things that we see, one of the reasons we have such Advent joy 
is that we see these wise men from the east in response to Jesus. They start heading west to meet him. And that gives us our theme for today, which is this, is when people want to worship, we must show them King Jesus. So I want to start out here, first couple of verses, we see these wise men come seeking an unknown king. It starts out kind of funny, actually, because here's Herod, by all accounts, a very effective and even popular, we could say, king. He was, he was a military hero. He had lots of public works that he had done for his people. The lavish temple that Jesus walked in and taught in was built by Herod. He had a very effective poverty relief program. Actually, you can find in secular sources. He was very popular, and Matthew tells us that he is the king. And then these foreigners show up. And instead of heading to the palace, which you would assume they would do to find the king, the text reads as if they're like parading down Midlow Turnpike, you know, knocking on car windows. Hey, where's the king? Where's your new king? And now, in case you missed it, they have a king, right? His name's Herod. And these wise men assume it's not him. So who are these guys? Well, these are wise men. In Greek, the word is magi, where we get magic from. The magi were from the east. Uh, Modern-day Iran and Iraq is where they came from. They were a class of scholars, a class of advisors. They were an educated caste. They were trained since childhood to advise the kings and the upper echelons of the government, very much like advisors to a president today, or maybe even cabinet members, we would say. And through exposure to the ancient Hebrews from their predecessors in the Babylonian captivity and the Persian rule, and probably even through Daniel himself and his influence in the court, the Magi had some specific Old Testament knowledge. We don't know what they had, but they had some because they, under, they saw this star and they understood that it heralded the coming promised king of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so they came to Jerusalem, verse 2 tells us, to worship him, to honor him, to pay homage to him. They didn't come to meet a celebrity. They didn't come seeking, you know, to, I, sh- I got to shake this guy's hand. They came to worship him because they knew that this king was going to be somehow amazing. And that's why they asked all over town, where's the king? Where's the reception line? To, where do I get in line for the great worship service? Your king has come. Where's the celebration? But there wasn't one. No one in this very religious city cared about Jesus. They didn't want to worship Jesus. But these outsiders, these foreigners, these wrong people, they want to worship Jesus. And I love that. It seems that God has a thing for outsiders. And and that really speaks to me because I've been an outsider most of my adult life. And I love seeing what God has done here. God gathered worshipers from the intelligentsia of the day, from the academic clan. When you think about missionary prospects, is that what comes to your mind? The academic clan, the intelligentsia, they're the ones who are really open to the gospel. We should send more missionaries to them, right? That's, that's how we think? <laughs> no. And they didn't think that way either. It's Matthew's original readers would be shocked at this. The intelligence, these guys come? Again, as I've said before, Matthew is the most Jewish of the gospels, and his first readers would have been just shocked. What is the God of Israel doing grabbing worshipers from those people? We can sometimes fall in that trap too, can't we? About, gosh, five-ish years ago, a new book came out called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. 
If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it to you. She was a professor at a secular university. Um, She was very hostile to Christianity. She was living in a same-sex relationship. And she started this project trying to do research on Christians. And just like God grabbed magi for himself and turned them into worshipers through that process, God grabbed Rosaria for himself. And she writes about her journey to faith in Christ throughout her book. And in case you don't know, today she is married uh, to a conservative pastor, has a bunch of kids, and is make, does the speaking circuit. Completely turned her upside down, yet she was from this caste in our culture that we would assume is... Well, what do we assume? Are they, are they smarter than God so they wouldn't be interested? Is that what we assume? Are they just too powerful? For God? What, what do we assume about, about the, that caste? Because that's what the original readers would have assumed, too. Is there anyone in your life that's just the wrong person? You just know, no, they wouldn't be interested in Jesus. There's no way they would come to Jesus. You you sure about that? We can have non-Christian friends, can't we, and think things such as, well, they're just too cynical. They're too hurt. They're too angry. They're too progressive. They're too conservative. Or, well, they used to go to church, but they had a really bad experience, so they're not interested anymore. Or their parents made them go. They don't really like Christians that much. See, we we get this idea, don't we, about what a normal Christian looks like, and so people who are different from that, we assume, well, they're the wrong kind of people. They wouldn't be interested. Jesus maybe isn't for them. See, and these wise men show us that nothing is impossible with God. He has a heart for all kinds of people. I love that. And that's why the incarnation, God in the flesh, is bigger than our whole world. From the very beginning, Jesus, God incarnate, was for all kinds of people. The Magi believed that this king was for them. And so they headed west to worship him, even though he was unknown to them. And once they get to Jerusalem, they find a city, we see in verses 3 through 6, having no idea what they're talking about. These magi are running around, they're upsetting the whole city of Jerusalem, the text tells us. Now, get the image of three dudes on camels out of your head, okay? There were three gifts, but this cast of wealthy scholars would not have traveled alone in those days, especially across this very dangerous territory. So think more of like an entourage. We're talking like a whole, uh, a whole bunch of these guys, their servants, their attendants, their guard, and they're coming in this huge throng, and instead of going right to the palace to announce themselves, they start running all over town. Where is your king? Where is your king? It would have been very noticeable. It would have been a big deal. And I love how the text makes it so clear. They don't show up and talk to Herod. Herod has to hear about it secondhand because, again, they're assuming it's not him. So Herod hears about it, and you can kind of see it in the text. Herod's like thinking, um, I'm sorry, isn't being king my job? So he's like, what's going on here? Look, look with me at verse 3. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. The text says he was troubled. It's literally, he was agitated. He was perturbed. He was upset. And it wasn't just him. It was the whole town. Why was he upset? Why were they upset? Because when Jesus is proclaimed as king, it means Herod's not. Jesus is a threat to his rule. 
just like Jesus is a threat to our rule, isn't he? I mean, we can claim to worship Jesus as the resurrected Lord, but when we do that, that word Lord is a political word. It's not a religious word. It means he's king. He is our king, and we are not our own king. So you can't have Jesus as your Savior without him being your king, your Lord as well. See, the gospel disturbs and agitates people here in the text and in our own time as well for many reasons. I want to focus on two of them. One, Jesus as king demands allegiance. The gospel is not be good and follow the rules, right? The gospel is not that you are better because you follow the rules. The gospel is that you aren't good, but there is a savior. And when you submit to him as your resurrected king, he forgives you. He makes you part of his household He becomes your new master. And you can't serve more than one master. Jesus as king demands our allegiance. And the second one, the one that really gets us in trouble in our culture, is Jesus as king won't be compartmentalized. He won't just be kind of put over into like the Christian hobby section. That Sure, when it's hobby time, go go play with your little hobby. Now it's time for real life. Keep it there. Keep it private. We've talked about this before. The phrase has become more and more popular, you hear it a lot, is freedom of worship. It was popularized by a previous president over the more common freedom of religion that you would hear before that time. And there's a subtle and significant difference in those two things. And it has to do with compartmentalizing Jesus as king. One, freedom of worship is an activity that you participate in occasionally in public with other like-minded people, but it's essentially a private act. It's worship, and you're totally free to do that private act. But the other, freedom of religions, is is an identity. It's a lifestyle choice that has ramifications for everything you do publicly and privately and civically. Jesus as king won't be compartmentalized. And many people, people in the room, people in our neighborhoods, are like Herod. They don't want to submit to Jesus as king, and they don't like it when you do either. But it's not just non-religious people. It's religious leaders as well. Boys and girls, I want to make sure you're following with me. Let's all look at your verse 4 there at the bottom, kind of in the middle of page 11 there. Here's how I put it for you. Herod called together the Bible teachers and pastors in Jerusalem and asked them, where is the Christ supposed to be born? So Herod wants to get a straight answer. So he calls in the university profs and he calls in the actual on-the-ground pastors to get the whole spectrum of answers. And they they know right away the answer to his question. I love how verses 5 and 6 kind of read like a, um, duh, Bible fail, Herod. It's in Bethlehem. Everybody knows that. And here's where it gets really scary. Notice what's not in the text. These experts on the Bible, these people who knew the prophecies, who saw the Magi on their entourage, who heard about the star, they didn't see it themselves, everything they had devoted their life to was coming to fruition before their very eyes. They knew the answer, and yet there's nothing in the text about them heading to Bethlehem to see him. In fact, Herod knows that they're not going to go, so he has to tell the wise men, hey, when you find out, come back and tell me. See, the grace of God in the coming Messiah was a principle to these religious people. He he was a point of knowledge that kind of fit into the puzzle and brought them hope. But they were not looking for a person to come, and so they didn't seek Jesus when he did come. 
Oh, hear me, dear flock. You can know the Bible and you can miss Jesus. You can know his stats. You can know his win-loss record, his miracle percentage, and not know him. And so often we see in Scripture and in, re- in life that those who are religious and knowledgeable or who think they have it all together are often the least responsive to Jesus. A few moments ago, we saw that the Magi came. The Magi were the wrong kind of person that God seems to favor outsiders. Those the culture wants to kind of throw away are the ones that God seems to bring to himself. And often, those are the kinds of people who are around a healthy church, too. Growing churches tend to be full of people who aren't always life's winners. Sorry. But, you know, actually, that's proof for the reality of the gospel. It's, it's those who are in need, those who are lacking, those who f- feel an absence in their hearts, who need help seek Jesus, and they gather around those who need help as well. But people who think they have it all together who consider themselves to be life's winners, who are knowledgeable, who think they don't really sense that they have a lack or a need of anything, they rarely see themselves as marred by sin. And they're not seeking after the peace and healing that our God offers. That's the religious leaders here. You have the progressive scholars and the conservative pastors both spouting off Bible trivia about the Christ and yet no compunction to go see Jesus the person. Whereas the powerful philosopher scholars from the evil empire have come to worship Jesus as king. They know they're not the right kind of person for a Jewish Messiah, and yet they come anyway. They come in their need. They come in their lack. They come in their desire. And today, that's how people come to King Jesus as well, not having it all together, needing help, sensing something's missing. And the promise of that little town of Bethlehem was just that, that God would send a king to meet and heal his needy people. Again, let's look at the boys and girls version. Let's look at your verse 6 together, boys and girls. Bethlehem in Judah, you are a very important place. Out of you will come a king who will take care of my people. See, boys and girls, the religious people didn't want to be taken care of. They thought they were okay. They had all the answers. And now hear me. Your, your leaders, your parents, Miss Becky, Pastor Sean, we want you to learn about Jesus. We, we want you to learn the gospel. We want you to be in Sunday school and at worship at home. We want you to, to know the Bible. But more than having the right answers, we want you to know Jesus. We want you to seek Jesus because you see you need him. Ask mom and dad how they need Jesus, and you'll understand better what we're talking about. And for all of us, see, Christianity is not like these religious people in Herod's court who only know stuff about the Christ. Christianity is the truth that God passionately loves his people, and so he has sent a person to rescue them. And he comes as our king to protect us as well. So these magi come seeking a king they didn't know. They found people who knew about him but didn't seek him. And finally, we see the magi in verse 11 worshiping the seen, the found Lord. I love how these magi, they don't wait around. They hear that Bethlehem is the place and they hit the road, Jack. And notice in verse 11, they go to a house, not a manger. 
and they see the child. Jesus is probably a toddler at this point when they see him, and they lay themselves face down on the ground to worship him, which is what every toddler expects, right? But Jesus actually deserves it. (laughs) Now, I know there's liberal scholars out there who say they're just being Persian. They didn't think Jesus was supernatural. Just that's how you greeted a king. Well, the problem with that is the Persian Empire is like 500 years dead, gone in the dustbin of history at this point. They're from this place called the Parthian Empire, and they didn't do that to their kings. However, in temples all over their empire and all over the Roman Empire, you know what people tended to do? They would go before these statues, and they would fall down before them in worship. And why did they fall down before them? Because they assumed there was some sort of supernatural connection there. And so when these magi fall down before Jesus, their posture is saying there's something supernatural and divine here. These men, these professional scholars, these royal advisors were coming looking for a Savior and they found Him. They knew He was supposed to be somehow divine. They knew that God was somehow with this child, and so they fall down before Him because that's what you do in the presence of the supernatural and the divine. And they worshipped Him. And then they gave of themselves. They gave Him gold and frankincense and myrrh. And people are always trying to find some significance to these, to these things. There's, there's not anything special about them except they're from their home country and they're valuable and they bring honor to Jesus. But what's really cool is in the providence of God, this poor family who was so poor that they, and, and if you remember the previous uh, passages we've looked at where they had to go to the temple and give a sacrifice of two pigeons or two turtle doves, that's the poorest of the poor sacrifice. If you had means, you had, actually had to give a lamb or a ram or something bigger. Luke putting in that detail of Mary and Joseph offering a turtle dove shows they're the poorest of the poor. How does a super poor family pack up and flee the super long journey across the desert to Egypt when they find out Herod's going to kill their child? Well, my guess is they might liquidate some assets such as gold, frankincense, and myrrh to finance the trip. Because there's a providential God who saw it coming and so provided for his people. That's the importance of the gifts, really. They saved Jesus' life. And here's what's really important about this. They believed in Jesus when they saw him. These magi. They saw no miracles at this point to prove that Jesus was king. They didn't hear Jesus teach. They saw a child. And they believed the promises of God. And so they worshiped and they served. We have so much more today than they do, don't we? Do we worship and serve Jesus? I mean, this Christmas, is Jesus just a cute little baby at Christmas in the little manger scene? Or is he actually the king and savior of the world? The one who brings health the one who brings healing to all kinds of people, even magi from the dark east. See, this incident, this, this, this event with the magi tells us a lot about God himself, actually. These guys were just doing their nightly stargazing. 
trying to discern wisdom from the sky as part of their job, and they see this new star appear. Most likely it was some sort of conjunction of planets, like a lot of us got to see over the past week. Hope you got to see that. And this thing is super bright, and it's amazing. All of a sudden, they remember the Hebrew Scriptures, and they look diligently, and they find them, and they, and they realize the time for the king of the Jews has arrived. And so they did not sit back and say, well, we'll just wait and see what happens. No, they went to the child because he could not come to them. These magi make this incredible journey to encounter Jesus. And Christmas is bigger than our whole world because God comes to us when we could not come to Him. Eternity enters time to save us. Jesus makes this incredible journey to us because we could not and would not come to Him. God's people needed help. And so His rescue plan was not to send a bunch of rules and say, try real hard, hope you make it. No, God comes down to rescue. He gets inside of our very flesh. He takes a body like ours so he can draw us near with very real arms and embrace us with very real love through the very real person of Jesus. That's the gospel. That God sent his son, his only son, to be human like us to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died in real flesh so that it could be broken and bleed, to die the death we should have died. Don't be like the people of Jerusalem, satisfied to know about Jesus and the stories and content with not knowing Him. All the joy we feel at Christmas... All the presents and the families and the trees, all those wonderful great gifts are wonderful at Christmas, but they're not knowing Jesus. All of those make for a very wonderful but small Christmas. But Christmas is bigger than our whole world because Jesus Christ came down as King for us. To be our new master. You know, if your career is your master and you fail your career, or the economy tanks, or for some strange reason, once in a lifetime, the government shuts down your section of the economy, and that's your master, it can't forgive you when you fail, can it, if you've given your life to it? If your wealth or the accumulation thereof is your master and you don't do that, it can't forgive you when you failed it. If changing the world is your master and you don't get to, It can't forgive you for that failure. But see, Jesus came down to be your master, your king, and he's the only master who says, you are going to fail me. I've died for your failures. And so when you fail me, I can forgive you. This Christmas, this moment, embrace Jesus as your master, as the resurrected king who can forgive you. Open your heart and fall before him in worship. Open up your life's treasures to him and give yourself to King Jesus. You'll find fulfillment. You'll find joy. You'll find peace this Christmas. And you'll understand why we are saying that Christmas is bigger than our whole world. Let's pray together. My gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you, Father for the grace you've shown us in sending Jesus and coming as Jesus to be our Lord and our Savior. 
Father, we're so used to hearing about the incarnation, especially this time of year, that we forget how, how ridiculous it is, Lord. If it's not true, this is just one of the most ridiculous stories that God became a, man, a human. And Lord, we thank you that it is true. And that it's these irreligious magi from a completely different culture and part of the a world who come and confirm this truth for us today. Lord, we pray that you would once again show us the reality that Jesus is our King and our Master, and He demands our allegiance. We pray that you would draw us deeper and deeper into His rule. Now we pray all this, Father, in His great name. Amen.